This is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast, hosted by Roman Prokopchuk, bringing you all things digital marketing, tech, business, and motivation. What's stopping you from becoming relentless in all aspects of life? Are you ready to become a digital savage? Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. Today I have with me Jeff Thatcher. Jeff is the author of The CEO's Time Machine. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, it's great to be here. I love your intro. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? Some of the things you may have gone through, career pivots, hurdles you've had to overcome. Believe it or not, uh, I have been in the same career uh, since I was 14 years old. And I grew up next to a amusement park uh, in Farmington, Utah called Lagoon, Lagoon Amusement Park. And I grew up there, I lived next door to it when I was five. We, you know, had a great time going to, got into trouble, um, got in a lot of trouble when I was 11 doing something called Yogi Bearing at this amusement park which if you know anything about Yogi Bear, it involves stealing picnic baskets. And I still feel guilty this day. And boy, did my parents let me have it when they found out. And then when I was 14, I got a job there as a cleanup boy. And they really did call us cleanup boys. That was our title was cleanup boy. And, uh, you know, that was a lifeguard, train engineer, uh, you know, a ride operator, a manager in the rides department, worked in the entertainment department, uh, was a DJ stunt man worked all the way through high school and college at this amusement park while I got a degree in journalism. And then I went to newspapers and found out that the happy people I was working with at the amusement park do not exist mostly at newspapers. They're underpaid uh, and it's just a lousy place to work in general in the media, uh, unfortunately. They're just not happy. And I missed working with people that were happy. So after a brief flirtation in journalism, I got my lucky break working as a creative writer for a firm called JRA in Cincinnati. It's a theme park, museum, and experiential design firm. So we did events, we did museum exhibits, we did theme parks, and had a great time working there, loved it. Thought I was gonna be there for the rest of my life. But uh, you know, you've got young children, uh, Roman, and you know, uh, when you are in your 30s and have young children, you have this desire to make more money. You have this desire to like provide for your family more. And I got the best advice ever from the chief operating officer at JRA. His name's Dan Schultz. He's still there. And uh, I was really wanting more. And he basically pulled me aside and said, you know, if you want more, you're going to have to go somewhere else. And I don't think he necessarily intended for me to, to leave. But what I loved about it was it was honest. It was honest advice from a leader. And too often, leaders don't give honest, direct, blunt advice. And he was right. If I wanted to make more money, if I wanted more responsibility, I was going to have to leave. And so I did. And, uh, you know, went and got a job at the Tom Peters company. So Tom Peters is a you know big business guru from the 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, I think he's still out there giving speeches. Um, and... Uh, so worked there, helped them write a book on leadership communication, was leadership training, 
And I really, I freelanced still back into the experience industry. And this was right after 9-11. So the company went from like 60 employees down to 15 and we lost all kinds of revenue. And, you know, it's important right now in this pandemic to teach young people that this is normal, you know, ups and downs, you know, there are recessions, there are bad times. And yes, it's a pandemic. We haven't had one of those yet, but it's okay. Things will get back to normal. You know, people will go back to movies. People will go back to events. It will happen. It will get back to normal. It always does. And, uh, but it was a great experience working there at the Tom Peters company. And every time they gave me more responsibility as they laid off more people, they said, oh, we can't pay you more. And I would say, well, that's okay. Just give me more vacation time. And then with that vacation time, they, I, I freelance back into the experience design industry. And then I just got too busy uh, working on you know, corporate executive briefing centers and corporate lobbies and brand experiences and things like that. And so uh, got a job as executive creative director for a company called The Brand Experience and really loved it. Took a little sabbatical down to Rio de Janeiro in 2007 to work on the Pan American Games, the opening ceremony. And that was a great experience for my career, but was I was miserable. <laughs> you know, sometimes we dream about these like you know, like, oh, I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to work on an Olympic opening ceremony, or I've always wanted to do a pavilion at Expo. And then you you do them and you're like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, it just wasn't what your expectation was. And of course, so much of our careers and life is about managing expectations. And generally speaking, I think we do a horrible job of managing expectations for people. But uh it was a great experience and it was great for my career. And I came right back to the brand experience as their executive creative director and kept on plugging away. And it was fantastic. And uh, long story short, three years ago, started my own company, Creative Principles. And uh, there was a little more drama to it than that, but uh, been, been a blast. And then in August of 2019, I was able to recruit my daughter, a Zoe, uh, after she, she spent a year and a half in St. Louis designing costumes, dance, ballet, and tap costumes for four to eight-year-olds. They're so cute. And I recruited Zoe away, and she came down to Savannah, Georgia to join us. And, uh, and it's been great working with my daughter. And, uh, you know, our, our most recent project, as you know, Roman, is um, when the pandemic hit and most of our projects went on hold, Zoe and I looked at each other and we were like, okay, we've got to do something. And I had written this short story several years ago and we had talked about having her illustrate it and talked about publishing it. But you know, the problem with doing projects in your spare time is you never have any spare time. And we just have been too busy. And so with the pause for the pandemic, we did a book and she was awesome. She illustrated 43 designs for the book. Uh, in record time, three weeks. And we lined up a great graphic designer to work with us on typography, a, a wonderful copy editor who put us in front of the queue and uh, called a publisher I know, and he squeezed us in. And, uh, you know, by the, by the end of April, we had a book on Amazon. And so it was, it was really exciting. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. Like you said, you went through kind of uh 11 in terms of kind of uncertainty there and there's uncertainty going on now during the pandemic. I actually had my, well, it wasn't necessarily career pivot, but it was literally outside of uh, college. I graduated when the recession hit and I had a pivot. 2008. Um, out, of, 
out of necessity and got thrown, yep, got thrown into digital marketing, presented the idea and, and have ran with it ever since. So I think even now, like you mentioned with the book, you have to figure out what you're going to do. There's a lot of people in similar shoes in terms of being laid off, fired, furloughed business owners that can't do business and figuring out how you can redefine yourself or work on a passion project, something that you may have put on hold in the past that you can really finish and it can add to your brand, you know, spiral or split away from it and kind of redefine your life in that sense. But, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty now, but you have to kind of do something with it and use the time that you do have uh, in, in a positive manner, because I mean, like you said, eventually it will go back to normal or some, you know, semblance of it. I think it will eventually go to 100% normal because I think human beings are in the moment. So when you experience something, uh, something traumatic or a loss, you're you're in that grief state or in that kind of emotional state. But as it fades away and it doesn't necessarily impact you anymore, you kind of forget about it and go back to normal regardless. You know, the next time somebody tells me new normal, I I'm, I feel like I'm just going to punch them in the face because, you know, I mean, part of it is if you if you really believe that this is such a transcendent change that things aren't going to go back to normal, and I mean, people are talking about it in my industry, like, will everyone will anyone, will anyone ever use a touchscreen again? You know, at a museum, you know, how can we ever have events again where thousands of people are crammed in? And it's like, okay. This book, The CEO's Time Machine, is about a kind of Elon Musk type of CEO who has, rumors have it, a time machine in his secret R&D garage that nobody's allowed to go into. And he's turning the reins over the company to this protege. And the first thing that he has to do is before, you know, actually the last thing he has to do before turning over the company to her is show her the time machine. So if you could go back in that time machine to 1919, I mean, the roaring 20s, hello, things went back to normal after the Spanish flu. Millions of people died and things went back to the normal. They went back way more than normal with the roaring 20s. If you go back to World War II, guess what? Things went back to normal. In fact, you could argue that things got better after World War II. With the, the, the economic growth and prosperity of the 1950s and the baby boomers, after Vietnam, you know, after 9-11, we will go back to normal. Everybody just needs to barrel through this. We will be fine. Um, yes, it is horrible. I mean, you know, we all know somebody that's been touched by this, whether it's getting, you know, furloughed, fired, dying, sick, mental health issues. We all know people that are suffering because of this pandemic. But, you know, I was working on a project related to this pandemic recently. It was trying to do, you know, how do we do live events virtually, which all of us struggle with. And I felt inspired to go look up uh, A Tale of Two Cities. And the opening, that classic opening, perfectly describes what we're experiencing right now. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. It's an age of wisdom. It's an age of foolishness. You know, it's the epic of belief and the epic of incredulity. It's hope and despair. It's all of those things. And, you know, I don't know about you, Roman, but there are times when I have felt totally like a fool during this pandemic because you don't know who to believe. And there are other times I've felt very wise. <laughs> and there are other times when it's been so fantastic having all of our adult children home 
I mean, they're not that old. I mean, Zoe's 23. You know, she lives 25 minutes away in Savannah. And, you know, our son Joel is 22 and a sophomore at Savannah College of Art and Design. But they keep, we all kind of came back home. And Mia, who's 18, starts college in the fall. But to have them here, it was so great. They actually moved back home yesterday. My wife and I were a little sad. So it is the best of times, but it's also the worst of times because our neighbor, a, a, you know, a doctor is furloughed. You know, I mean, how crazy is that during a pandemic to be a medical professional and to get furloughed? So it is the best of times and it is the worst of times. Yeah, I agree. And it's how you've been impacted by it, obviously, how you had to overcome and the things that were the trials during that. And, you know, you have to make the best of it, especially though it well here it's been, I guess, under stay at home order since I guess the third week of March. So, I mean, I think the state of New Jersey has been the second, I guess, worst hit area in the country. So it's it's been interesting, especially with four, uh, you know, small foster kids in terms of four boys jumping off walls the whole day. But it's just, <laughs> I mean, you have to make do. Um, I'm, I mean, I was born in Ukraine. It was still under the Soviet Union. So I, I kind of remember how things were then. I mean, I came here when I was five, but it it's what you've been through up until now too that would prepare you for it. If someone wasn't impacted in the recession or by 9-11 or anything else that has happened, they may be dealing with it a little bit differently in terms of anxiety and other things. But I think if you are kind of that uh, battle tested or have had those trials, positive you know and negative and have taken away from it i think it's a little bit easier to you know cope or you know get through it as well right right you know again you know we talked about managing expectations earlier and you know they should probably offer a course in college or high school to students to just talk about and i guess they do offer history but sometimes we forget our history that you know ups and downs recessions boom times it's all cyclical it's all normal and we always tend to somehow make it through. Yeah, a, I agree. Yeah, which is a good thing. So what motivates you to succeed? Well, you know, there's a number of different motivations. I, I used to, don't really have them anymore, but I used to have dreams all the time that I got a phone call and it was my university where I graduated calling me up to tell me that they had a clerical mistake and that I, I actually didn't graduate. And I talked once to a, somebody, we were at dinner and we were talking about dreams and I shared that dream. And, and this guy that I was talking with was convinced that that dream was simply a manifestation of my desire simply to, to succeed that, you know, I, always felt inadequate, if you will, and so wanted to succeed. And so, you know, I've always felt a little bit like an underdog. Um, and, you know, I've been fired twice in my career. And, uh, you know, it's, I was a horrible student, uh, horrible. I mean, uh, didn't really get good grades. Uh, and so I've always felt a little bit like an underdog. And so, there is a strong desire that motivates me simply to prove myself and to simply, you know, fight through any adversity. I, I've been told before that I have Teflon skin and in some ways you have to be, if you're a creative director like I am, 
you know, there are people that don't like your ideas. And so you just have to kind of keep pushing forward. And, um, you know, one of the secrets I think to success for anybody is, is, is not taking no for an answer. It's what my mom used to call polite bugging. You know, if you really want something, it's okay. You might be told no three or four times. I was actually rejected by my university three times for admission before I got in. And it was a negotiation with the admissions counselor. You know, I remember that the, the third time they rejected me, I went to the admissions counselor. I was like, okay, what if you accept me summer term on academic probation? Then if you accept me on academic probation, if I do anything below a C, I'm I'm out forever. But if I do well, then you have a great student who, you know, at the school. And she went back and submitted it. Anyway, I got accepted on academic, academic probation. Also graduated on academic probation. But in between, I, I did good. And in fact, you know, I was actually editor-in-chief of the school paper. And when that happened, I went back to that same admissions counselor and I told her, I said, listen, I said, you gave me a, a, you gave me a, a chance. You, you, you know, you basically let me in when you shouldn't have. And I said, on that stack over there on your desk, there's somebody in there that needs a chance. So please give somebody a chance. Now, what motivates me right now, and certainly what motivated us with the book, there's no logic to it, but Zoe and I just felt this really strong desire that we had to get the book out before the lockdown ended, before the shelter in place orders were done. We just really felt this intense desire to do that. And we also felt a desire, you know, Creative Principles, the firm that I own, we're a small company, we have tons of contractors. And I felt this desire to keep them busy. So it wasn't very much, you know, but the $1,250 we paid to the graphic designer to help us on the book, that was something to her in March. You know, she was very grateful for it. The $600 we paid to the copy editor, again, wasn't a whole lot. But in March, that was something. And so I felt, you know, as it relates to getting the book out, this just intense desire, almost like this just innate feeling that we had to get the book out. We had to get it published. Yeah, that's awesome. That sense of urgency. Absolutely. That's, uh, you know, I believe in working fast. I love working fast. And that's, you know, Zoe did 43 illustrations in three weeks. You know, she doesn't know yet that she's not supposed to be able to do that. And that's wonderful. And we sometimes, as we get older, we forget that it's okay to work fast. And I love working fast. I mean, if you look at like, okay, Disneyland was basically designed over a weekend. You know, if Disney as they do is design an, I mean, you know, it can take years to master plan a new park on the scale of Disney. And they did it over a weekend. So what does that, what does that have to say? So I actually love working fast. And I think that as you work fast, it, it can have great benefits, not only to your creativity and the project, but, um, uh, but other benefits as well. Yeah, I think speed is important and the ability to pivot as fast as possible. And obviously, if you're a solopreneur, entrepreneur, have a business and you're not this big titanic corporation that is political internally, they can't kind of move and get out of the way of that iceberg. I think that's one of the biggest uh, strengths you have. 
the speed in which you get to market with whatever you do and the ability to pivot if directions need to be changed. Yeah, and certainly one, one of the messages in the book, there's a lot of layers to the book, uh, the CEO's time machine, but one of the messages is that CEOs, leaders have to figure out a way to work around their middle managers who are there to drive process. Now process is very important in a large organization. Those middle managers are very, very important. But if you're a leader, you've got to fi figure out a way to somehow um, cut through that middle management layer to really uncover the talent and the great ideas uh, of, your, of your people that will totally transform your future. I mean, we tell the story in the book of John Lasseter uh, at, at Disney. You know, he was a young animator at Disney and they fired him. <laughs> they fired him. And, you know, you know, I don't know, maybe he deserved to be fired, who knows, but boy, that was basically a $7.2 billion mistake. I mean, what would it have cost Disney just to spend a little money to help him progress digital animation within Disney? And it didn't happen. So as leaders, we've got to figure out a way to unleash the ideas of our young people, because the reality is, if you want to travel to the future, if you're Elon Musk and you want to travel to the future, guess what? There is some young employee at SpaceX who is the future CEO of that company, is the future leader. Your, your future is already there. You just need to find it. And that's what this time machine can do in the book. Yeah, I think that's important, uh, realizing kind of the strengths and, and abilities of people internally and situations like I believe uh, WhatsApp was was pitched to Facebook or Instagram was pitched to Facebook. Uh, and the person that pitched it obviously sold it for you know billions of dollars. But prior to that, they were looking for a job at Facebook and they weren't hired. So they went and created. So it's uh, realizing and, and seeing kind of the potential of internal employees and assets and external that may come along and kind of, I guess, giving them a chance because oftentimes these big organizations, it's very bureaucratic, the hiring process and things of that nature. I mean, I, I've worked, I believe the, the biggest company I worked at had about 50,000 employees, so it's, it's fairly big. Um, and, and I think hiring practices in terms of HR need to change and kind of identifying strengths because internally there are a lot of people that are not necessarily in, in roles that fully uh, express what they have to offer or their true potential. So really understanding and evaluating what people are interested in and where they can eat, uh, add the most value as well. You know, when I first started talking with my daughter Zoe about hiring her, my biggest concern was holding her back, was limiting her because we're a smaller company. I mean, the company where she was designing costumes was much bigger. And fortunately, when she left there, they they asked her to stay. And so she still works 10 hours a week there designing costumes, which is fantastic. And is a little, you know, a little extra income on the side for her, which is great. But I was worried about limiting her. But she always tells me, she's like, no, no, no. She's like, I mean, she said to me the other day, she's like, dad, do you really think any company would have given me the opportunity to do 43 illustrations in three weeks and actually have my name on the cover of a published book? I don't think so. You know what I mean? She's like, I mean, the first, you know, month on the job, she did a really cool aerial perspective of a zoo. And it was the very first time she'd done one. And she's like, 
She's like, no company would have let me do that for the first time. You know what I mean? I, you know, I said, you know, they wouldn't let me just try it. I, she's a, so she's like, she keeps encouraging me that I'm not limiting her, but it's, it's, it's really sad. I mean, you know, both times I got fired, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was being held back. And, you know, it's not the job of a leader to hold people back. And I don't know why we get it in our heads sometimes when we're managing people that we know better and, you know, well, you're not ready yet. Or, you know, well, you know, know, one of my biggest frustrations as a creative director is when the chief operating officer of our company um, uh, would tell me, well, no, no, you can't give that assignment to this employee. I'm like, why not? Well, she's not ready. Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? You know what I mean? What's the third? I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen if you give something to somebody? I mean, generally speaking, it's not like, I mean, okay, if you're in a hospital or life and death, I get it. But, you know, we're creating experiences. We're doing like, you know, museum exhibits, corporate lobbies, you know, brand experiences, events, you know. If I give somebody the job, hey, I'd like you to design these costumes for this Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi grand opening. If she messes up, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? We'll just hire somebody else to do it. You know what I mean? It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's not the end of the world. It's a costume. So, uh, and I just, I just think that the future is in the minds and the hearts and the souls of these young people that we work with. And it's also in the hearts and minds and soul of these older people that are stuck in jobs in these large organizations called, you know, director of special projects. You know, what happens to people that have great ideas, but they're perceived as being difficult or they're perceived as being weird. And so they're, they're shuttled off into some corner of the company to work on special projects. I mean, isn't that what Morgan Freeman was doing in, in Batman and Christopher Nolan series, right? What they, what they do, they made a director of special projects and put them down in the basement. It happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame. I think uh, organizations that give creative freedom are kind of room to grow and innovate. And also companies like uh, Google form like incubators, basically. If you have an idea and you want to run with it and create kind of your own company within the company and have funds for that and kind of it only helps them. But like you said, there's there's things politically uh, you get into a routine, you're comfortable. Some com- uh, some companies are very archaic and don't necessarily want to innovate. I mean, you look at companies like Blockbuster that are out of business that, you know, had an opportunity to buy Netflix, but they thought the, the idea was outlandish and thought the DVD and VHS would last forever in terms of in-store rentals. So I think like a closed-minded uh, mindset will always lead to kind of the the death of a company. If you look at the Fortune 500 list 50 years ago, a lot of those companies don't exist anymore because they failed to innovate. They did. They did. And I think we need to do the same ourselves. I mean, you know, and, you know, another another point we try to make in the book is, you know, if you have a time machine, you can travel back and talk to the CEO of Blockbuster. Hey, tell me what you did wrong. You know what I mean? You know, or you can go talk to the Wright brothers and say, tell me what you did wrong. Because guess what? You know, there should be. I mean, the the two men that invented the airplane, they should have a large company named after them today, like Lockheed Martin or Boeing or Airbus, but they don't. They don't. They screwed up, man. They spent money. They spent all their time and resources suing people instead of innovating. And look where it look where it got them. You know, and 
But the reality is, if we take a time machine and we travel back and we talk to all these people, we still have to come back to the present and make a decision today. We still have to be decisive. I mean, you know, we talk about Lockheed Martin and Skunk Works in the book, and Kelly Johnson, who was the founder of Skunk Works, was turning over the reins to Ben Rich. Uh, and Ben Rich was the, the man who basically led the development of the stealth bomber, the stealth fighter, that F-117, which really changed everything. And, and Kelly was supposed to spend like, you know, two weeks with him, you know, briefing him and helping him and, you know, everything. And he called Ben Rich into his office and he basically just said, um, make a decision really fast, even if it's the wrong decision, just decide, be decisive. And then his only other advice was, if you're going to kill a project, kill it dead, don't wound it, kill it. <laughs> so, and you know, that was it. He gave him those two pieces of advice. Now, the reality is, is if the CEO of Lockheed Martin today were to go back and talk to Kelly Johnson, great, fine, but she still has to come back to this moment today and decide, okay, what role should augmented re aug uh, artificial intelligence play in the in the war making decision, a war fighter's decision? You know, how much should we invest in a sixth generation fighter? Should we invest the company and bet the company on going to Mars? These are all the, the questions she has to answer and she has to decide today. She has to make those decisions. And again, I do think that too many leaders just aren't really good at making really big decisions quickly. And you need to. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, even if you're wrong. Yep. And when you have that kind of uh, information from the past or results from the past or, you know, learnings from different companies, you still have to execute and make a choice. I think it's one of those things like you watch a motivational video and you get all hyped, but you then sit down and don't do anything with it. It's like, what's the point of that information if you don't apply it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that, you know, we wrote this book and it's great, but one thing that I hope I'm not perceived as is like a leadership motivational guru. I mean, I'm, I'm an experienced designer. I'm a creative director. That's what I want to do. I want to go back and create theme park attractions and museum exhibits and, you know, do new corporate lobbies and customer experience centers. I want to work. I want to do what I do for a living. That's what I want to do. I don't want to, you know, talk about leadership all the time. I just want, you know, to go back and work on those things that I love to do. But that said, I want to make sure that we do it right. You know, one of the things that we did do with the book that's a little different is it it's, it's written like a theme park attraction. You know, every great theme park attraction has an iconic element that draws you in. Like what's your favorite theme park ride? You know, Universal or Disney, do you have one? Um, Disney, I would Potter, Hogwarts attraction. I mean, do you have a favorite theme park ride? Yeah. I mean, the, the Harry Potter world was a pretty cool experience. I was there last time we were actually there. We took our first foster kid placement oh, yeah. um, and they were just building the whole star Wars thing. It wasn't built yet. So yeah, that's something Wars. you haven't been to star Wars yet. Yeah. No, but I, that's something that I would, you know, definitely yeah. would like to check out. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about Hogwarts, right? Every, the best experiences in the world, the best experiences in the world, they start with some type of iconic element that draws you in. So for, for Universal Studios and the Harry Potter attraction, it's the castle that draws you in. 
for our book, it's this garage, a garage door that opens. And behind that garage is this mystery, right? So it's the icon is the garage. And that's the icon in our book. And just like it would be if it was a theme park ride. And then at that Harry Potter attraction, what, what happens next? You go inside the queue. Now people think the queue is there just to wait in line, but not really. The purpose of the queue, if it's done right, is to build trust. And I can tell you when Zoe and I first went to Universal Studios and we were standing in Hogwarts Castle, she turned to me and she said, she said, Dad, this is legit. This is legit. Trust was built. And so again, in our book, what happens first after they go into the garage? It's a winding hallway filled with historical artifacts where they're setting the context of the time machine, you know, where they can look up spark plugs and eight track tapes and model airplanes and all of these historic artifacts, NCR cash registers. It's like the CEO collects all these important historical artifacts to remind him of what's important, but that's the cue. And then what happens next in a theme park attraction is you go into a pre-show, you know, at Universal Studios at the, at the Harry Potter attraction, it's the defense of dark arts classroom. And there they tell you the information you need to move forward in your journey. Well, in our book, that small windy hallway of historical artifacts opens up into a rotunda where a statue of the Roman god Janus is on display. And there the CEO is able to impart to that her, his protege the information she needs to move forward in their journey. It's the pre-show. Then, what? Then, of course, is the main attraction. You hop onto the ride at Universal Studios. You ride the broom, and you know you go around. It's the ride. You internalize. You internalize the story and the message. And in our book, it's the same thing. What happens next is they journey and go to the CEO's actual time machine. And then finally, what happens at every great attraction is you exit through retail. And everybody thinks it's just about buying stuff, but it's really not buying stuff. It's about becoming part of the story. You know, when, when, when Zoe and I and our, our kids and my wife went to Universal Studios, we went on that ride and then we stood in the retail store at the base of the castle and we looked at all of the different rug, you know, Quidditch jerseys and we had a debate. Which one of us is Gryffindor? That's my wife and my daughter, Mia. Which one is Hufflepuff? Zoe. Which one is Ravenclaw? Joel. And which one is Slytherin? Unfortunately, that would be me. I'm Slytherin. We became part of the story. Sure, we bought a, a jersey. Sure, we bought wands. And then we bought butterbeer. But we became part of the story. And it's the same for our book. I want people to become part of this story. I want them to, to share it with others. And I want them to really have the story have meaning to them. And so I could be wrong on this, but I think it's probably one of the very first books, if the very first book that was written as if it was a theme park ride. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, like you said, I mean, I've never really thought about the theme park experience like you mentioned it, because then at the end of that ride, when you leave, if you do purchase something, you're kind of emotionally vested in that and the likelihood of you coming back and obviously rides and different experiences, they add on to it over time. So you're that much more likely to come back and want to experience that again. Yeah. If you think about your favorite experiences, whether it be a museum, a theme park ride or a trade show exhibit or whatever, the, the very best ones really help you become part of the story. And they do that through this model of, you know, 
icon that draws you in, a cue that helps you to build trust and establish that relationship. And then some type of pre-show that gives you the information you need. And then you internalize the story in the main attraction. And then you really become part of that story as your challenge to actually do something, you know? And that that's really, you know, the fun part of my job. And again, I've I've had this job essentially since I was 14 years old when I started working as a cleanup boy at Lagoon Amusement Park. And it's fantastic to basically have that, you know, that work that you did as a teenager still influence the work you do today. Yeah, that's awesome. And a lot of the time I also speak about kind of brick and mortar locations and the reason they failed or went out of business in terms of that actual store or what have you is they didn't present a unique experience. So things like Toys R Us, they could have ran with it and did so many things to draw people in and have them come back and actually want to be in that store for an extended period of time. But they didn't do so, nor did they move their business really online into e-commerce. And, you know, that's that's sad because if you don't have an experience like, all right, you go to Best Buy, there's nothing there, you know, or any other kind of appliance store. You can get all that online if you know what you're looking for. And there's no reason for you to even leave your house for that specific thing. You know, though, can I ask you a question about Best Buy? Is it just me or I don't know, every time I go into Best Buy, I'm just drawn to those big giant TVs. You know what I mean? And I just stand and my wife always looks at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I just want to look at them. And she's like, we're not buying a TV. You know, we don't need one. And I'm like, I know, but look at them. They're so like amazing. Is it just me or is just a massive wall of TVs, like the coolest thing in the world. I think that may be a guy thing. I think they do the same thing. I don't know if you, you're a Costco member. If you walk into Costco or at least the one by me, it's literally like in, in a row, like their best in terms of technology and their biggest as you walk in. So it's like, all right, well, maybe I need a TV. Maybe not, but. Costco is something that I just don't get. I mean, we were actually gifted a membership a couple of years ago and they tried to like get us the deluxe membership, you know, and they kept telling us all the reasons why it was this and that and that. And we just, you know, they were really trying to sell us the upcharge because we, we were gifted for Christmas, just like the regular Costco membership, you know, and I forget what it's called. It's like the platinum or the gold Costco or something. I don't know what it is, but, but they were like, Oh, but if you get it, you'll get this kind of discounts and this and this and it'll pay for itself and blah, blah, blah. And you know, I finally just said, my wife and I were there and we finally just said, tell you what, let's flip a coin. Heads, I will keep my regular boring membership. Tails, we'll upgrade. And so we flipped the coin and it was heads. So we kept a regular membership. And this person was like, you are the first person ever, ever who has never upgraded to the gold membership. And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I don't get, and we let our membership lapse. I don't, I'm, I'm currently not a member of Costco. I just don't get it. I mean, the samples, okay. I do like the samples, you know, on a Friday afternoon at like Sam's Club or Costco, I do like the samples, but I like their hot dogs. But other than that, I just don't get it. Yeah, it's, I guess it's that appeal of uh, buying in bulk. I I am also a member of Restaurant Depot. So that's like- Like a big bulk guy. Yeah. So if you have your own um, like LLC or business, it doesn't have to be restaurant or food related. You can basically get a membership free of charge to shop at Restaurant Depot, where obviously restaurants buy their quality of fish, meat and other products, which is cool. Are you a good cook? 
my wife is a better cook. I prefer to grill a little bit, although she I says, yeah, so. I'm grilling today. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 uh, I, I, we're not, we're not a big foodie family, but, uh, sounds like you are. That's good. Restaurant Depot. I had no idea that even existed. No, yep. I mean, they may have some where you are, so I would just look for it. And like I said, free membership, you can go in there. There's a lot of yeah. interesting things and interesting volumes. So, yeah, no, I don't know. I read an article once about the rotisserie chicken at Costco. It's like, apparently it's a big deal. I mean, I like rotisserie chicken, but I've never had Costco's. Is it better than rotisserie chicken at like Boston Market or... Like it's order? it's this it's the same but i mean <laughs> rotisserie chicken i relate like we've talked about experiences so medieval times where you eat with your hands and you get that kind of a quarter or half rotisserie chicken based on tying with emotion as a kid and then taking my foster kids there that's kind of have to be like what i think of when you ask that that's what comes to mind yeah okay now i'm getting hungry <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting hungry now anyway so what's one piece of advice you can leave with the audience, personal or professional? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. One piece of advice. I guess my piece of advice um, would be, there's so many things I could say. Well, the first thing that comes to mind, honestly, is don't believe the lies in the workplace. Don't have unrealistic expectations about work because, you know, it's okay to have realistic expectations about work. Um, and, you know, the, the best example I can give of that, you know, when Zoe, who did an amazing job illustrating all of her stuff, when she went down to Auburn University to swim, we told her, Zoe, this is a job. Don't expect it to be all, you know, sunshine and roses. The, your coaches, their career is, and their life, their like their salary, the way they support their families is dependent upon you swimming fast. So you have to realize that it's a job for them and it's your job. You're getting paid to swim and it's a job. And I think, and she would tell you this, having that realistic expectation in mind really helped her to understand and manage those expectations. I mean, where people get disappointed in the workplace is when they have unrealistic expectations, you know? It's like, for example, you know, you know, I have a, a friend who, you know, um, well, actually, instead of telling that story. So, for example, I was working at a company where the the CEO brought in his wife as the chief chief operating officer. So you had a married couple running the company. I had unrealistic expectations that it would just be like a normal work relationship. I was an idiot. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? No, I mean, you can't complain to the CEO about the COO if the COO is his wife. You know what I mean? It's not, not going not to get you very far. You know, where in a normal work relationship, you could take complaints about, you know, or it wasn't really a complaint. It was more, not even a complaint's the right word. It was more just like disagreement over the operation of the company, for example, and dis, and policy decisions that are being made. Um, um so you have to have realistic expectations. I mean, when think, for example, like, oh, the people at work are going to be my best friends. No, work is based on mutual interests. You know, you agreed to have me on your podcast, not because I'm your friend, because you hope that I would have something worthwhile to say. 
And I agreed to come on your podcast because I would like to get word out that I have a book, you know, the CEO's time machine, www.ceotimemachine.com on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, blah, blah, blah. Cause I would like to get out the work cause I'd like to sell more than 39 copies of the book. So, um, which is where we are right now, but it's, you have to have realistic expectations about work. It's not about friendship. It's about mutual interest. It's not family. We have our family at home. You know, if you want to make more money, you know, Dan Schultz, the advice he gave me at JRA, well, if you're going to make more money, you need to leave. Great advice. You know what I mean? Set my expectations realistically. So if I were to give any advice to your listeners, it would be if you are believing a lie right now at work that makes you feel good, stop believing that lie and embrace the truth. Yeah, I agree. And I think that expectation setting is important professionally, personally, or if you work for yourself or someone else, because if those expectations don't align with goals or other things, it's never going to work and lead to kind of burnout, you leaving, you know, disagreements and anything of that nature as well. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, when we did this book, I did not have any expectation that we would sell, you know, millions of copies or even sell thousands of copies. You know, we did this book because we just wanted to do something. We wanted to do something during the pandemic and we did it. And if we sell more than 39 copies, I'll be thrilled. I would love to break even, but you know, I have to sell 2,500 copies to break even, but we'll see. And the reality is, as you probably know, uh, you, you make so little money if you're an author <laughs> on the book, your royalties like <laughs> that much. So anyway. Yeah, well, I, I hope. A natural plug. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I hope, uh, you know, as a result, more people learn about it and purchase the book as well. And I appreciate you for coming on. So how can people find more about you, your company, and how can they find the book? Uh, well, the book easy, is easy to find. It's called The CEO's Time Machine. All you got to do is Google it. We have a website, ceotimemachine.com. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. That's that's very easy to find us. I mean, personally, you know, both Zoe and I are on Instagram. If, you know, Google Jeff Thatcher or Zoe Thatcher. You can find us on Instagram. Zoe has an amazing Instagram art, uh, you know, uh, account. And she, right now, she's posting a mermaid every single day because it's May and it's mermaid which is an Instagram challenge for May. So she's doing a mermaid every single day with this month, which is great. And really the style of the book, the illustration style in the book came from the Instagram challenge Inktober. That's really where the style for the book came from, which on October 29th, she did this really cool ink sketch called a girl with a red scarf. And I saw it and I'm like, Zoe, this is perfect for that short story I wrote a couple of years ago. And then, of course, we did nothing about it until the pandemic hit because we were busy. But, um, you know, uh, so LinkedIn, all that stuff. Our company's website is creativeprinciples.com. And uh, um, but really, if you go to CEOtimemachine.com, that's the best way, best way to find us. Awesome. Thanks again for stopping by. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, Roman. And I'll tell you what, I don't I so love that intro. I've listened to it like three or four times just to kind of get me excited to work. So thank you for the. The cool announcer, radio announcer. I can't even pronounce your last name. Roman, how do you say it again? Roman what? Prokopchuk. Roman Prokopchuk. I got that wrong. I messed it up. Anyway. It's close so enough. I really appreciate it. You too. Thanks for jumping on. You bet. 
This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.